keep Mr. Martin in prayer for his healing. He'd like to come back to church. Um, there is a Lord's Supper coming this this coming Sunday, so we delayed it by two weeks. Pardon? And it's a fellowship snack. We have the call to worship. The call the fact that goes out to the ends of the earth. Give unto the Lord, all ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. I'll worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Let's bow our hearts and heads in sound of preparation for worship. stand and sing Psalm 145-145-C. unbounded love through Christ Jesus for our salvation, for our goodness, Lord, and for our eternal bliss in heaven to come. We are thankful, God, for this day of rest, that we can put aside, Lord, work and distractions, and that we can be here, gather with the flock of God, the family of the Lord Jesus Christ, and worship you and hear your word preached and proclaimed. Help us, God, to grow thereby, we pray, as you taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have the reading of Psalm 43. Psalm 43 inside the bulletin. Let us read it responsively. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And so we read here of his response, part of his response, as we know elsewhere in the Psalms, what he does when he is in difficult times. And crying out to God, obviously, you can do that anywhere. But he says in verse 3, let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle and to the altar of God, which is the Old Testament form worship, public worship, as we are doing now without the altar that has been cast aside with the coming of Christ Jesus. We can do the same thing if we understand the significance. Let us pray. So we do come before you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, glorious three in one, you who are our Creator, our King, and our Lord, love us with an everlasting love and are vindicating us through Christ Jesus. And as we struggle, Lord, with our cause against an ungodly people, we cry out for deliverance against unjust men and from our own sins. We're thankful through the work of Christ Jesus on the cross that we have such deliverance in our justification and an ongoing deliverance in our sanctification that will come to fruition when Christ Jesus returns. We thank you for your light and your truth through the word of God, through the church, Lord, who has mediated that truth through the preaching of the pastors and through the ministrations of the members therein as they talk to one another the truth of your word and to unbelievers, God, to exhort them to repentance of Christ Jesus, to see the light and to flee the darkness of this world. We're grateful, God, that we can come to you, the altar of Christ Jesus and the cross, as you are our exceeding joy. We praise you, God Almighty. Help us, Lord, to persevere in this joy, to persevere in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of a love that will never leave us, Lord, that will overcome our sins and is overcoming our sins, Lord. We thank you for your justice, for your goodness and your truth and the light of revelation, both around us as we heard the Sunday school class and general natural revelation, God, and here, God, especially the special revelation, the unique truth of your word given to us in the Bible. For our homes embracing this truth and this goodness, for our churches preaching it and living it. We indeed bring our sins before you, God, as to the extent that we are leaders parents on our job, morally with respect to our neighbors, God, and elsewhere, in accordance to the fifth commandment. We have fallen short. Help us, Lord, to repent of those sins and other violations of your word of perhaps avoiding responsibility in our calls, Lord, saying, I'm not a leader. I don't have such responsibilities. Whatever the case may be, God, help us to acknowledge these sins and put them at the feet of the cross, Lord, to repent of them and to be encouraged by the gospel call of a lifetime of repentance. Indeed, God, we pray for justice across this land, for the local police, for the judges, for, Lord, the laws of our county and cities to be righteous and holy and good in accordance to your word, to expose the darkness and the lies, conspiracies around us, God, locally and statewide and nationally, God, 
We're thankful that some of these things have come to light. We pray especially for your protection of your church and the courts and the laws of the land. We ask God and pray for Christian leaders to rise up and have access, Lord, to the funds and influence they need that are slowly being shut down around us. Help us, we pray, to work to that end, to the extent that we can, God, as sometimes it's simply just voting, but always praying, God, because we believe in justice, godly justice, in accordance to your word. We pray for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and her efforts to bring the gospel not only to this nation, but across the four corners of the world for foreign missions, Lord, that they would persevere therein, that they would have the wisdom from your spirit to know how to use the funds and to use the people and their strengths and abilities, Lord, the men in particular, and to help on the foreign mission field. We're thankful, God, for missionary activities in Haiti, although it's been very hard to come back, um, in Europe and in Africa, Lord, and parts of Asia. We pray for the preservation of your truth through these pastors and the building up of local congregations with local people and local leaders to rise up and to lead their people and to preach the gospel of repentance and faith to a lost and dying world around them. And they understand their culture. They understand uh, their people, Lord, enough to apply and give the right promptings, Lord, and provocations thereunto to the truth of repentance, of acknowledging their sins, and embracing Christ Jesus and following him all the days of their life. Help us, Lord, to that end. You've used us over the many decades as a small denomination. We pray for the effort of other churches of like-minded faith as they try to bring the gospel to the world around us, across the foreign world, far away. They, too, are fruitful and faithful to you, God Almighty. We pray for our particular church and her outreach and her growth. And, Lord, not only for our growth, but for the growth of our presbytery, the regional church, and the various churches here in Colorado and Dakotas, Wyoming and Utah, to be with them as you are with us, to help them grow numerically and spiritually, help them talk to people they can talk to and their neighbors, give them pastors especially access to more people and access to people to hear the truth of your word. Help them, we pray, to stand firm, to be protected from the evil one, to be obedient, to be uh, leaders of repentance as well, Lord, as they see their own sins and continue to grow in obedience and sanctification. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are grateful and thankful for the many blessings you bestowed upon us in this land, and especially for your church and your people. Help us, we pray, God, to live a life of holiness and obedience, always with a humble heart, acknowledging God, our need of Christ Jesus, yet with a boldness, as we are encouraged, because you are with us, and that we are on the right side, not because of our own pride, but because you have opened our hearts and our eyes. And may we ever cling to your truth, we pray. For your glorious namesake, for the expansion of your kingdom, amen. We now the tithes and offerings. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and 
Holy Ghost. Amen. We're indeed grateful, God, as we praise you, and as we exalt and lift you up before the world, telling everyone and everywhere, God, that you are greater than all things and greater than us and worthy to be followed. We're thankful for these opportunity to give these tithes and offerings as a evidence, Lord, and effort, Lord, in our hearts uh, to continue to show love and honor to you that we may grow thereby, but especially for the growth of your church through these material means we pray. Amen. Uh, while we are standing, let's go ahead and sing hymn 242-242 in the Trinity Psalter Maroon. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. It's after the book of Hebrews. First Peter 5, verses 10 and 11. Chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. The end of the book there. <coughs> Excuse me. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God, 1 Peter 5, verses 10 through 11. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. With these closing words, God, by Peter, penned to his audience, these 2,000 years ago, and yet by your spirits and your strength and power, still therefore applicable to us with the true eternal words and moral truths therein. 
May we be encouraged, God, that you are indeed perfecting and establishing us for your glorious sake. Amen. In these closing verses, Peter offers a benediction of sorts, a blessing wrapped in a prayer. Like all such prayers, he bases it upon the free grace of God in Christ. Although he mentions grace and mercy several times in the epistle, this time he specifies the purpose of God's mercy in Christ, that we may be unto his eternal glory. In a nation full of selfishness and everything about what we can get out of life, this is 180 degrees different, isn't it? Blessings that we have, the goodness given to us even here in this building, sitting down in these seats. It's not merely and only for your creature comforts, although God does care about that so far as he tells us in his word he wishes to bless us. But it's to a greater end and goal. It is to the end that we would glorify God for giving us such blessings, that we would magnify his name and tell the world about him and honor him in our hearts and our actions. What is the chief end of men, brothers and sisters? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. There is more to life than what we see around us. The materialism and the wealth, the prosperity, the health, the prestige, reputation, all that is fine in its place, but nothing compared to eternity if you have not God. And God is the greatest good of all things, and so those lesser goods point to our greater good, our God in Christ. Amen. How is this accomplished, that we may be to the glory of God? Peter mentions not only the goal of magnifying God, but mentions the means as well, as we will see in this text. So let's look carefully here to learn thereby. The first point is God is of all grace. He says it as an obvious truth. And may the God of all grace, who has called us after he's established us and strengthened us, settle you. The God of all grace. What is grace? It is unmerited favor, undeserved mercy. We know what grace is when we have done wrong. When we have broken the speed limit, the cop lets us off without a ticket. He's being gracious to us. But it's more than that because it's not just a speeding ticket. It is rebellion and hatred of God, the creator of all. We know this in our families. If we have children and they hate us and despise us from a young age, for the rest of their life, and we've done nothing wrong to them, we've showered them with blessings, we took care of them when they were infants, we fed them, we protected them, we stayed up late at night, we worked hard for them, and they still hate us. Rebellion in their hearts against us. It is worse than that with the infinite God. When the finite shakes their fists at the infinite, it's an infinite offense. And so grace, nevertheless, against that backdrop of depravity, of wickedness, of gross violations and transgressions of God's holy law, God in Christ says, I will save you anyway. You have a demerit. You should go to hell. You should be punished eternally for offending an eternal God who has eternal honor. God said, I will save a people unto myself. That is grace. It is undeserved mercy and goodness towards us. We cannot obey God enough. We cannot follow his Ten Commandments enough in thought and word and in deed to merit heaven, to say, bring me eternal life. I've been good enough. No, it's all of grace from first to last. This is what he means when he says, but may the God of all grace, not some grace, not a little bit of grace, but from first to last, it's all of grace and God's goodness towards us, his good intentions towards us in spite of our sins and because of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he tells us elsewhere, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, Peter says, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace brought to us by Jesus Christ. And we see he ties it here as well, that the grace that we have, uh, the goodness and the forgiveness of sins by God is attached to the idea of Christ who called us God called us to eternal glory by Jesus. Because Christ is also part of the grace given to us. God is the source of all grace. Every good thing in life, in fact, rain, sun, 
and sunshine and food and moisture is given to whom? To the just and the unjust. Wicked leaders and tyrants get water and food and sunlight as much as the most holy saint. That's because of God, not because of either one of those. He is especially the source of goodness and life in the Christian and for the Christian. And all things, in fact, are directed towards our good as we're reminded of Romans 8. Everything in history is directed to the good of God's people and for his glory. Even if we can't always see the explicit connections. And God is behind all that. He's the source of every grace to the soul in particular. We know we are justified by grace. Even so, through one man's righteousness, righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification in life. The declaration in the law courts of heaven, as God is the judge and his wrath against sinners, is assuaged and pacified because of the person work of Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. That is justification. To be declared righteous when we are still yet sinners. But that righteousness is not ours, but imputed to us, which is a legal term. They're used in the Bible. That's of grace and all of grace. Adoption, Ephesians 1.5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Uh, what? According to the good pleasure of his will. What's another word for that phrase? According to the good pleasure of his will. But grace, unmerited favor, mercy, compassion, that works in our lives, not only giving us justification, but adoption, and we are brought into a new relationship with the creator of the universe. And so we are separate from the world, and baptism separates us that, at least externally, and shows the world that we are different. We have a different God. We have a different family. We are the family of God. Not just this church, but all churches that name the name of Christ. And we're not only justified and adopted by grace, given adoption and the means of adoption by grace and the ends of adoption, his glory by grace, sanctified as well. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we are all bound to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Sanctification is, of course, contrast with justification. Justification is objective. It's a declarative act. When the judge says, you're innocent, good enough for me. But of course, we know personally, we still we have sins. And that's where sanctification purifies us internally, whereas justification is external and objective. Sanctification is ongoing, mutable, and internal. And it's the call to a holy living. Sanctification just means to be set aside to live a life of obedience to God. And we can do that because we are justified and can always go back to the mercies of God when we repent. And regeneration itself, of course, is a gift of God and therefore of grace. In John 3, we know the great passage where Christ, the second member of the Trinity, compares the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to the wind as a metaphor. Wherever the wind blows, so the Spirit of God blows. To whomever he blows upon, they are born again. That's what that famous passage is, to be born again. Have we been born again? We are. And if we are born again, it's because the Spirit of God came upon us and gave us new life or regeneration, a spiritual life of acknowledging God and following Him and fleeing the wickedness of the world, the wickedness within ourselves. Faith itself, as we know, is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. The beginning and the end of all grace is from God above. Peter in chapter 1 we read, elect, he, the opening verses of the letter or the epistle of Peter uh, to the saints dispersed across the Mediterranean. Probably a lot of Jews in that mixture, uh, given the allusions he has here in First Peter. Saved Jews. He says, I'm writing this letter to the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. There we read of a threefold grace, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian basis of our salvation. In Peter, it just says it so naturally, the Father has elected us, the Spirit has sanctified us, and the Son has saved us. 
by his blood, the sprinkling of his blood. And so we see the fullness of grace and all that is entailed in our salvation from first to last. It's all of God. And he calls us, therefore, to something greater. But may the God of all grace, and we saw what that grace entails, everything in the Christian life, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, or in Christ Jesus. And so we are called by the Father, by and through the Son. They are coordinated in, our, in their acts towards our salvation, as we know. God who calls, or who called us, Christ is the means of that call. As I said, it can be translated in Christ, uh, Jesus, because whenever God calls someone to salvation, it must always be through and by the work of Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved outside of the Bible and the revelation of the Bible. We went over that in Sunday school class with Bullinger, one of the uh, German reformers, highlighting that truth. Yes, there's lots of knowledge of God's law in the world around us. Unbelievers have a lot of knowledge of what is right and wrong. They know it in their hearts. They speak to one another about it, especially when the wrong is done against them. They're quick to identify that wrong. But they care nothing for God and want not to be saved. We pray that they will hear the gospel so they will be saved. And so, when he says that we are called by Christ to his eternal glory, we know that calling involves the gospel. Because Christ is mentioned here. This is where the calling comes from. But the calling has a goal, as we know. The goal of being called by God is for his eternal glory. You were called by God in eternity past, to be sure, to be one of his dear children, so that you may glorify him. And we glorify him in a twofold fashion. We glorify him to come, and we glorify him now, or tomorrow and today. Tomorrow we glorify him by living with him for eternity. It tends to... This idea is hinted at here when he says, we are called, or that is, he called us, who called us, to his eternal glory. So that's the goal, right? The word glory is the word for honor, to give due weight. God is the greatest of all weighty matters and people and the universe, so we give him the greatest glory and honor. And it's eternal. And so that means to honor God in eternity as believers would mean we have to live with him for eternity. And, and so that's implied here in this text that we will be perfect and established forever and ever as you read the next section of this verse. And thus we are future-oriented. It's the goal here. We are called to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. This is the purpose of our life, brothers and sisters, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it's also today. Not just tomorrow in eternal life when Christ Jesus returns, we live with him for eternity. But today we glorify God. And here he unpacks it in particular. After you have suffered a while, right? That's today. This is now. The eternal glory has a future orientation, but it begins now, he says. God indeed calls us. It's an efficacious call. It's a gracious call. It will come to pass, and nothing shall stop it. But meanwhile, as we are called and thus drawn by that call through history in our lives, after we have been established and suffered for a while, strengthening us and settling us. After we've suffered for a while, that's the here and now. God's grace is with us, right? This is one of the themes of the book. As we went through the passages and the chapters, I hope you saw that it came up over and over again, the suffering of the saints, the suffering of Christians. We suffer as citizens of nations when the citizenry is suspicious of us and starts hating us, and we have a history of that. We didn't. We see that in the history of the church in the book of Acts. The suffering in, in a business. We have Christians, of course, have lost their jobs for making a stand for godly marriage over the last several years. They're suffering. They lost their whole livelihood. They're close to retirement. Now what are they going to do? Because they wanted to stand for Jesus. They were suffering, and the Bible talks about that. It talks about, in particular, servants being beaten by their masters for being Christians, for doing the right thing in particular, right? He highlights that. You're doing the right thing. You're following Jesus. You're obeying your boss and your master. You're trying to do a good job, and you still get punished for it. And he says, do it anyways. God, as we see here, he gives us a reason for this, that God of all grace, he is calling us through our suffering. 
to an eternal glory, the glory of him for a higher purpose, an eternal purpose. And this should be an encouragement for us and for his audience, obviously. He's reminding him one last time before he's done writing this. You are suffering, but God has a purpose for this. God is behind this. After you have suffered a while, God's going to perfect, establish, and strengthen, and settle you through this instrument of suffering. Suffering, of course, is in various and sundry ways, as we know. We talked about it's for God's glory and for our good. His glory as we show the world what it means to follow him by doing the right thing regardless of the consequences, by believing him when no one else will believe and trust in him. I know people love movies about heroes standing up against the world, and that's what we're doing, except it's not a movie. And many Christians today in the Middle East and Africa and Asia and North Korea are dying because of it, suffering with their bodies. God is working in them as hard as it is to realize. Perfecting, establishing, and strengthening them. Perfected for his glory. Third point. Perfected for his glory. The circumstances are, as I already went into, after that you have suffered a while. We suffered in various and sundry ways. Suffering is something that is done to you. Specifically, when doing good, you get punished. That's the the theme here he mentions in chapter 2 and 3. Suffering also includes bodily difficulties, of course, sickness and pain that have nothing to do with your obedience to your boss or to your nation. Just existing. As we know, we had people with COVID, and some even died in our congregation, uh, for that has come upon them, this difficult suffering and God is using the suffering and tells us to persevere by implication here because God has a greater purpose and goal. And all such suffering, even the suffering for our sins, sufferings we bring upon ourselves when we do the wrong thing as a Christian. We rebel, we're grossly disobedient. If we uh, lie to one another, we get caught and there's consequences for it. Even that kind of suffering is used by God for our good. And thus we can persevere. The goal of suffering, here in particular, he says, after a while you have suffered a while, that God who calls us, that God, this God of all grace, and thus should be comforting to us in the midst of our suffering. God has a purpose and God is good, even when it looks like it's bad. To perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To give us perfection, establishment, strengthening, and settling of our souls. In other words, suffering is little and temporary compared to eternity, will not last forever, as we know, and is used for God's glory. To be perfected here, it is to be thoroughly equipped, which is related, obviously, uh, to the word established there as well, to settle, to make fast, and thus they're related ideas in particular here. Uh, this is often the case, because again, although the Spirit of God moved the authors of the Bible. They use human language and human ways of writing things, and often we speak of the same idea with different words. And so here, to perfect and establish are closely related ideas. And in fact, the word perfected is to be thoroughly equipped or even established. Established is overlapping that idea, but also to make steadfast. Our life is steadfast and established in Christ. Our suffering will not overthrow us because we are being perfected through it and established in Christ. And that God is behind and through all these things by his grace and his mercy. To be strengthened, of course, goes a little step further than being perfected and established by God Almighty and his grace. It is there to overcome our weakness. We have the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled by the third member of the Trinity for a particular end to be holy and sanctified, to be obedient in thought, word, and deed. And God strengthens us in that regard, even in the midst of suffering. Even though you may wish that strength would mean, I don't feel miserable in the midst of my suffering, that's not what it always means. At the very least, it means you will persevere and never deny your Savior. Even if you are feel miserable, and you say terrible things because you are, some people are in pain. 
There are Christians who have died in miserable pain, cancer eating them up from the inside out. God's grace is sufficient, even then. A grace that covers whatever spontaneous temptation we have in the midst of physical pain in our bodies, because that is God's promise to us. Settled uh, is also, is in fact a closer word, a synonym to established. You are settled and established, of course, on the rock of Jesus Christ is one of the first things that comes to my mind in this language and idea here. It's the same word, in fact, here for settled. In Matthew 7.25, where Christ says, And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall. The house that was what? Built upon the rock of Jesus Christ. It was founded. It was settled on the rock. And so again, we are called by God to His eternal glory, And after a little while, God indeed is and will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. Because God is a God of grace, and he is behind all things for our glory, or our good and his glory. The suffering is real, but God nevertheless will settle us unto eternal grace. This is encouraging words for them in the midst of their difficulties, as a struggling new religion in the middle Middle East and the Mediterranean area. People finding out more and more about how strange they were. They have one God instead of a multiplicity of gods. And all these other strange beliefs. And Peter says, persevere, it doesn't matter. You can, and God is with you, and God has called you. When God calls, we will respond, even in the midst of suffering. And he gives this praise a praise that should be on our lips here in verse 11. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory and dominion. Again, our life is for God's glory. Giving God glory is to honor him for all his goodness and his justice and his righteousness and all that he does. For recognizing him in submitting to him just for who he is. God is that amazing and that significant in existence in this world and our lives that though he slay us, yet we will praise him. Now, the unbeliever is like, that, that's crazy thought. What, what, what kind of a religion is that? Though he slay you, yet you will trust him? You know, brothers and sisters, we see in slow motion a society bent on self-destruction. Though the drugs slay them, though the alcohol slay them, though the destruction of family and marriage slay them, though money drown them in worry and fear, yet they will still trust in those things, will they not? Everyone has something they will trust to their own death. They will rely on, even if it kills them. Many a movie has tragedies like that, and stories. But ours is in the name of the Lord our God, who created heaven and earth. Theirs is in things of this world, things that he created for our good, but they abuse it to their end in death. It is the most rational thing to trust and believe in he who created you and calls you to follow him. And so that is the glory of our Lord and Savior, the glory of his might and power and grace. Here in particular, his might and power is dominion. To him be glory and dominion forever. We hear lots about and is good, and the Bible is full of grace and mercy and long-suffering of God towards us and our sins through Jesus Christ, but also dominion and power and might. And we praise him for his glory, and we praise him for his might, his dominion, that he is a king over this universe. There are two ways in which there is the dominion of God across this world. Through creation and through providence. Through creation and providence, here, as one idea, even though people don't follow a king in America, we don't even know what that means, (laughs) 
He's still a king. He's still in control. The oceans obey his command. The winds move at his beckoning. Wars and chaos do not thwart him. Rather, he girds them to his own use. And so the beginning of all things, creation, the providence is the maintaining of all things in creation right now. We live in the midst of providence. We call it history. That is God directing and guiding all things to a a final end and purpose in life, a telos. He rules all things. The earthquakes that occur, the lightnings that take out the forest, these are God directing and guiding all things. That's his might and power shown in but a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of his omnipotence upon this world to wake up unbelievers that destruction is here because this world has fallen. And they ought to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And so he rules even if the unbeliever does not submit to him. It doesn't matter. We have plenty of rebels in America who don't care about the local magistrate, who don't care about the governor, who don't care about the president, will not submit to the laws of the land. doesn't matter. They're still the boss, and they're still going to call the shots. It's an ineffectual rebellion, and so is the rebellion of men. It's ineffectual against the king of kings and lord of lords, and he still rules, even if though the world claims it doesn't. The other way in which he rules is through his special providence through his church, through Christians, through us and our hearts and our lives. We are, what, born again and brought into the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God that the Bible speaks of. Christ Jesus said, I came to bring the kingdom of God, to usher in the kingdom of God, to establish it through his work, and he did. God rules through Christ over Christians and the church. Even without a local particular church, during times of war, when organizations broken down and your pastor's dead and there's no leadership in the church, And even if you lost the Bible, you still have the kingdom of God, what? In the midst of you, within you, and among you, as Christ says, in your hearts. As long as there's one Christian on this earth, there is that special kingdom of God and his rule. And that should be comforting. Again, in the midst of suffering. Because in in that context of dominion, if we have a God who does not have kingship and lordship and dominion and power and might over sin, this world, and the devil, then we are of all men most miserable. Because we have no hope against those things. We have no hope in our suffering. We have no hope of the promise of perfection, establishment, strengthening, and settling us unto eternal life if God does not have dominion and power. And he uses that dominion and power to perfect us and strengthen and settle us. This is why we are comforted and have hope. Because he directs all things, both the good and the bad, for our good and for his glory. And he has dominion over all. Praise be to his name. May God bless us through our suffering. May God be glorified in our trials. May you be perfected, established, strengthened, and settled forever in Christ Jesus. And may we continue to glorify him for his dominion and his grace towards us forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. And so God Almighty, we come to you as our Father in the name of your Son, and by the power of your Spirit of God. Desirous, Lord, to live a life of glorifying you, of honoring you, a life of sanctification, a life of growth, even in the midst of suffering, Lord. Various and sundry sufferings, to be sure, God, but it's real nevertheless as we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Help us, God. May we be encouraged to live a life to your glory and for your dominion forever. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 236, 236.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen. Thank you.